An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have Sarah Bloom Raskin as our special guest. Professor Raskin is the Colored W. Brown Distinguished Professor of Practice at Duke University Law School. Professor Raskin has served as Deputy Secretary of the Treasury for the United States, the second highest official in that cabinet department under President Obama. As Deputy Secretary, she focused on the resilience of the country's critical financial infrastructure and elevated cybersecurity to the level of prominence it has today. Professor Raskin also served as a member of the Federal Reserve under then-Chair Ben Bernanke, where she helped set monetary policy as a member of the Open Market Committee and oversaw the nation's payment system. Finally, she was Maryland's Commissioner of Financial Regulation during the global financial crisis. In all those positions, she brought a strong public policy perspective, which included consumer protection, economic justice, diversity and inclusion, and I might say public service excellence. In other words, she sees the role of the financial system as serving society rather than being the master of it. Welcome, Sarah. Happy to be here. So what's your origin story? We, we find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are? Oh, it's a, a, an irresistible question. I really was a, a, a non-traditional kind of Fed governor. I don't um, have a PhD in economics. I didn't come up through a purely academic, an academic path. My, my early interest really is one of an observer, um, as a witness, bearing witness really to, to the economy. At a very young age, I, I would, you know, I would go with my father. We would you know, we would walk through our, our town. I, I grew up in a small town in Illinois and, um, and he would point out, you know, the donut shop that was, that was closing its doors or the, the auto mechanic garage that was moving down the street. He started to show me households that were boarded up because people weren't able to pay their mortgages. So from a very young age, I really became interested in, in observing, in witnessing the markets and witnessing how our economy works. And as, as we know, you know, economics is not a science. It's a, an imperfect kind of depiction of, um, of what is happening in our society, what is happening with, um, with households, with, with commerce, how, how people are making decisions. And that, that was very interesting to me. So I really started as, as an observer. I want to get to your background, but, but you mentioned something interesting to me, which is that economics is not a perfect science. I agree. And yet I will tell you that if you talk to academia um, and you want to get published in the leading economics journals, you have to have a lot of math in there. You have to pretend it's a science. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, how you, you're a professor of law, 
but you clearly, you're, in fact, your undergraduate thesis at, at Amherst was on monetary policy. So you clearly have an economist background in some ways. Can you talk to me a little bit about the state of economics today and how we've gone down this route that seems to want to have perfect math, but such brittle assumptions that they don't work in the real world? No, I, I think you've got it exactly right, John. It is highly quantitative. And of course, what, what economists do is they attempt to model the um, economy and they, they, they do it with, with as much precision as they can, with as much data as they can. They draw relationships and create regressions and determine what coefficients are in order to model what is happening. And you're right that it has become highly quantitative. I happen to be a quantitative person. So I, I majored in economics. I wrote a highly quantitative econometric actual thesis as an undergraduate. Back when I wrote it, just <laughs> it's interesting to note, they didn't even have, you know, we didn't have sigmas and, and pies really on our laptops. And I remember, and this was in the 80s, having to find a special typist who had a typewriter who had all these mathematical symbols. The profession is indeed extraordinarily quantitative and mathematical. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think that is fine. It's really the next step that we have to uh, think through, which is that are these models based on data that reflect the real world? So let's move from economics to the financial system itself. But we've already heard law economics. Um, as I said, you, you have a consumer protection lens off it, and obviously you're an academic. Even the courses you're teaching this semester are interdisciplinary. The first, as might be assumed by your previous answers, climate change and financial markets. And the second is law and financial anxiety. So given your multifaceted view and almost a holistic view of the financial system, let me ask you an overarching question. From that holistic point of view, what are the key things our financial system gets right today and what does it need to improve on? So a couple of observations here. Our financial system is absolutely critical to how we run our economies, right? They are, in essence, intermediaries. They are both borrowers and lenders. And so they serve as intermediaries that essentially provide the lubrication for our ability to, to innovate, to create, to actually build and function. So the financial system is integral, absolutely integral to our economy, to our economic growth, to its being able to be in essence, an economy that everybody can participate in that is, in essence, one that is inclusive. And that notion of inclusive prosperity, I think, is one that the financial system would not, in essence, do on its own were it not for a very important feature, which is this notion of a, of a, of a public guiding hand, right? So in essence, there, you know, we, we don't have um, a financial sector that is, in essence, off doing exactly what it wants to do. There is an important role here that our democratically elected leaders put in place to, in essence, help shape the, the guardrails, the contours of how the financial sector serves, in essence, the economy and, and the American people. So the notion of what, you know, its value, I think, is absolutely extraordinary. Um, at the same time, it's, it's not something that runs on its own. Um, and so you do need to have a, an important 
perspective that is a perspective of its overall function held by people who are our policymakers. And you want to make sure that the policymakers are, in essence, have that view, have an important view of the, the importance of the common good in mind as, it, as they steer through the contours, through laws, regulations, rules uh, that become the guardrails for the, for the financial sector. Let me give you a follow-up question on that. Um, let's play a thought experiment. What would you do if you suddenly had the ability, unlimited ability, to affect our financial system? Everybody, Congress, Democrats, Republicans, the president, the courts, the banks, the insurance companies, the state regulators, everybody will agree with you. No matter what you say, if you said the sky was purple, they'd all agree the sky was purple. What three key changes would you make into the financial system to make it work better, however you define better? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can think of three, but I'll tell you one that comes to mind, which is, and it's a great question, by the way, John, we should only have such a world, right? We can nominate you as financial uh, um Poobah or whatever that would that term would be. One thing that I think is um, would be kind of magically important is the notion of having a financial sector that is able to see around corners, right? See both the risks and the opportunities that lie ahead, and that reflect those risks and opportunities within their. Uh, underwriting within their um, whole model for how they operate. So it's a kind of wonky answer, but the the notion that the financial sector, if the financial sector could see for us exactly what is lurking and could, could put sort of quantitative boundaries around it, I think we would have a good sense as to what lies ahead. We would have a good sense as to the safety and soundness of our financial sector. We'd have a good feel for systemic risk. We would have a very good sense of climate risk. I mean, so it, 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 that's kind of the, the sort of the, the magical gold standard if we knew exactly what, what lies ahead. And then the, the businesses and the financial sector acted accordingly, right? If they acted accordingly to what, what, what was seen, then we wouldn't have inefficiencies in market pricing. We would have market performance be a true barometer of what lies ahead. That strikes me as a data question as opposed to a structure question. Is that correct? Well, it's both. It's perfect data. You know, can you, can you, can you see around the corner, right? It's, and so it does have a data component. And by the way, that data, that's a big component because you also have to figure out how do you quantify the unquantifiable. I'm talking about here being able to bring in all sorts of, um, you know, everything that lurks around the corner. So it is a data question, but it's a structure question too, because what do you do with it? If you're a financial firm and you do have these magical glasses that permit you to see um, ahead, how do you price? How do you collateralize? How do you, in essence, reflect those risks and opportunities in your business model? So you previewed earlier your views on climate. Let's talk about this a little bit. 
You were nominated by President Biden to be vice chair of the Fed. And despite the fact that you'd been confirmed twice previously by the Senate, once unanimously and once by voice vote, it's a different era. Republican senators just weren't going to vote for basically anyone. And then West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he would vote against your nomination due to your stand that climate risk is a risk to the financial system. I should point out this is despite the fact that virtually every financial regulator around the world, from bank, former Bank of England and Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney to SEC Chair Gary Gensler, European Bank President Christine Lagarde and Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda, believe exactly the same thing. And <laughs> as we speak, as we said, you're teaching a course on climate change in the financial markets. So would you be so kind as to explain the links between climate change and the financial system, or at least some of them, because they are myriad, um, and why climate change is, if not a threat to the financial system, at least a condition, a changing condition the financial system has to deal with. Really, the topic of of climate change um, is really it's it's just irresistible, right? It's a it's a challenge unlike any others that we have faced. The, the earth is changing. Uh, we have seen climate change grip societies and economies. It's exacting staggering costs. <clears throat> We've seen, you know, heat waves and floods and fires really be more frequent and more intense than even the scientists had predicted. And we know that many Americans, like people around the world, everywhere, are being exposed to the experiences of trying to work in the midst of unprecedented and unpredictable heat waves, floods, storms, and fires. As the earth changes, we are seeing um, changing economic behaviors. And these changed economic behaviors really throw notions of efficiency askew at the same time that they raise questions of resilience, and of mitigation. And so see these climate change manifestations really now evident in our supply chains and in our, the way we produce in our manufacturing sector, in our distribution channels, and, you know, in, of course, in our energy grid. So the notion of climate change is now something we all can experience. It's not a, it's not an abstract Thing anymore. We know what it is to experience to be in a flood, to be in a drought, to be in a forest fire or a hurricane, or um, you know what it is to have sea level rise, a heat wave, and um, it's not abstract anymore. It's not abstract at all. It has materialized, and it's real. And so it's here. And the question for me, and I think for others, um, is really to, to ask questions about it, to ask the questions, the fundamental questions regarding how it has altered our markets. And that is, you know, that's part of what the course is about, but it was also really part of what, what my nomination was meant to capture, which is let's ask the questions, okay? I don't, I don't claim to know the answers, but we certainly, certainly need to ask the questions. And back to your earlier, our earlier discussion, John, you know, the question of models. For example, are our models working the way they would be expected to work in this new 
climate-wrapped economy. You know, and then, of course, you have the subsequent question of not only are our are our models working the way you would predict, given climate change, but will our policy tools have the same context when they are applied to our economy if the economy is looking fundamentally different? Now, again, my nomination was about asking those questions. I don't think that those are questions that should not be asked. I think policymakers need to and potential policymakers need to take a stand. This isn't, I'm not making a political point at all. I'm making an, you know, an intellectual, academic, I think rigorous point, which is, do our models reflect the changed earth? And if not, how must they be altered? And will our policy tools work in the same way? Given that... And, and given, quite honestly, widespread, not quite unanimous, but widespread academic and regulatory agreement about the need for asking those questions and acting on the answers that you get from those questions. I mean, even the Bank for International Settlements, the Bankers Bank, has, has said that climate change has wide-ranging economic and financial implications and that, in fact, central banks shouldn't rely on it to bail them out because the scope of it is probably too big. Why do you think there's so much political opposition to viewing climate change as a financial issue, specifically in the United States? Oh, it's a great question. And I think about it a lot because you're exactly right that it's not, um, it's not universal. I mean, it's not as if you have this notion that climate risk is somehow a political question. You know, you don't have that in the European countries as much as you have it here. You don't have it in the UK as much as you have it here. Uh, you don't even have it in China and in, you know, some of the Asian countries as much as you have it here. Somehow in this country, climate risk has become falsely controversial. Those are probably questions for like the 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 political political scientists as to what the forces of political economy have become here. Um, all I can say is that these are not these these are not partisan questions, as you can tell. I mean, the questions that I am am asking, and I asked then, and I continue to ask, is how do you model a world that is losing its predictability? To what extent is climate affecting the operation of supply chains? What is the least destabilizing way for this decarbonization journey to occur? I mean, these are all questions, John. I mean, I could keep going. What are the laws and rules and regulations that could catalyze financial destabilization? So what is this intersection between our structure of laws and regulation and financial destabilization, okay? In other words, when there, is, when there is legal regulatory intervention, how do we think about that from a destabilizing versus stabilizing perspective? Then, you know, in the realm of climate, I think about how do businesses and households build a capacity for ruggedization, right, in the midst of 
severe climate discontinuities. So there are a host of questions here. I don't find any of them to be, I don't find asking any of them to be controversial. And I, 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 I want people, we want people to be able to ask these questions. And if the answers turn out to be nothing burgers, hey, there's nothing here. Don't worry. There is no, there's no such thing as climate risk or don't worry. The banks have it all under control. Okay. I'm fine with that. I'll take that. I'll take that. I want to see your, you know, I kind of want to see your arguments for it. But why are we not asking the questions? I want to ask you a personal question. Um, both you and your husband, Congressmember Jamie Raskin, have been forthcoming and quite honestly inspiring talking about your son, Tommy, who suffered from depression and died by suicide. And um, as a father, I can't quite even imagine that. Um, and you've dealt with it while in the Washington spotlight. How do you stay functional? Um, it's, this is one of, this is one of the most horrible losses. I think that, um, that parents can go through, that families can go through, um, and, uh, you know, the, the temptation of course is to, um, is to just kind of forget that it happened. Um, you can't, it's, it's, it's with us always. And we, I mean, Tommy Raskin was just an extraordinary, extraordinary human being. He was, you know, he was everything in our lives. He was, he was brilliantly funny. He was um, an extraordinary mimic. He was like whip smart. He was so compassionate. He, he just, he was woven into our lives. And we, um, the, his, his, his absence is felt every single minute. Um, in terms of being public about it. I don't quite know what the options are. I mean, we live in, we live in a, in a, in a, in a society and communities and people, we're not the only ones experiencing, um, this kind of, this kind of, um, pain and grief. There are so many, so many other families and, um, and you, you get strength when you talk about, um, when you, when you do talk about it. I, I think it doesn't serve, um, serve the memories of our, the extraordinary people we've lost when we don't talk about it. And we also don't serve the medical science well when we don't talk about it. Um, uh, uh, depression um, and other mental illnesses are illnesses. I mean, they are, they are afflictions and they can be, they can be lethal. And to pretend they're not is, I think, serving nobody. And when you are forthcoming with it, it's pretty amazing, John, you know, the reaction you get because people, um, so many people reached out to us, people who um, themselves suffer from depression and they explain to us what it is, how it feels, what it, you know, what those temptations um 
are like. Um, so they, they, they provided real um, and continue to provide real, um, uh, real, a real articulation around this. Um, a lot of, a lot of doctors uh, would, you know, reached out to us because Tommy left us a beautiful letter and they wanted to, they wanted to analyze. I mean, that was a gift. It was an amazing letter and he wanted, and, 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 and I think that helps, um, helps people understand, you know, state of mind and how the mind is working and what, you know, what prompts um, an act like this. So um, I, I think it, I think it serves a purpose. It is, you know, it's an awful thing to experience and to talk about. And we, um, and you also don't want the, you know, the, the life of your, you know, of your, of your child to be remembered just in this one final day. Tommy Raskin lived an incredible, you know, incredibly rich life. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and so that is, you know, that, that's also the balance of, you know, not making it all about what happens on one day in one moment, but, um, really the course, um, and texture of a life. So, um, thank you. Thank you for, for the question. Thank you for agreeing to talk about that. Um, I've learned that people listen to this podcast for the professional insights, but what they talk to me about most afterwards when they call or email are the personal perspectives that they hear and that they take to heart to help them in their daily lives. So uh, thank you. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I read fiction. I mean, I, I think I love books. I love, um, I love being able to um, kind of expand my way of understanding the world and the way of understanding people in different situations, people in different, come from different backgrounds who live in different places, live in different eras. Um, I, I just love, I love fiction. So it goes back, I think, John, to your initial question about an origin story. I mean, I, I, I think one of the best ways we observe and witness is through trying to put ourselves in the shoes, in the shoes of others. Um, so there is just amazing, there's so, such good writing out there. Like there's such good writing and such good descriptions of, um, of other communities and other times and other other societies and countries and I, 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 and other people, what they are, you know, what they're struggling with and what they're achieving. So that's, that's for me, a a go-to. What are you reading right now? That's a very complicated question. Okay. Cause I have different, I have very different categories of things. So, um, uh, cause I'll always have something, I'll always have, uh, kind of a nonfiction that is, you know, helping me kind of master something that I'm that I'm working on. In terms of fiction, I will always have, I can only do one piece at one, one kind of book at a time. I'm reading a book. And by the way, the people who give me books are, they, they are also, they, they are also the, the special, special people in my, in my life because they give me these books with their recommendations. And they, um, these are my, you know, these are my friends and um, my dear friends. So 
my dear friend Diana Clark gave me a book by a British writer named Penelope uh, Penelope Lively name, and and the name of the book is Offshore, and it's about uh, it's about a group of families that live on the in London on the Thames, and they live in these barges in the early sixties. And so it's a very um, it's a something I would not understand or have experience with otherwise. So it's um, it's 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 their their lives on the barges um, and the barges don't move, but they the barges flood and uh, they flood periodically. And it's the it's this resilience, you know, amidst flooding. And it's also a it's a whole society and a community of people who come together around um, what's happening in the river. So anyway, that's the that is the fiction piece at the moment. In terms of in terms of other things I do, I try to read. I right now I'm going through um a, a series of poems on actual on loss, on loss and grief, which I know sounds very grim, but poems, poetry actually I think just is one of the purest forms of being able to capture a set of emotions and a lot of times does it through um, something very everyday, something, you know, that you see in nature, um, something that you see in just everyday, you know, in your, in your kitchen. I try to always have some, also some poems at my side as well. And, um, that also, by the way, in this case is, it's also a very, um, it's a really good way through some, some hard times. Do you listen to music? I do listen to music and this is this is something I, I always listen to music and I have to say when we lost Tommy, for whatever reason, I have a hard time now going back to um some of some music. Music, as you know, John is very evocative, right? It's very evocative of memory and of um it brings to mind different things. And so I'm working back into my love of music. Um uh i'm not i'm not this is one of the one of the ways i think people have to reset you know after after such a traumatic loss and so i'm working on it i I, i'm gonna get there you know i'm gonna get back into a love of music right now it's a little painful okay last question if you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing what would you tell them I think it would probably be something about the power of love, actually, um, to kind of embrace, embrace, embrace love, um, love for people in your family, love for your friends, love for your community, love for your country. Um, and um, I think it's a, you know, you talk about Talk about something that is not an economic concept. That is one. <laughs> but it's, to me, one of the most powerful, powerful forces. Um, uh, and so, so integral to, to resilience, um, to um, optimism, um, and to a sense of commonality. I think it's love. And a lovely way to end the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Professor Sarah Bloom Reskin, um, an incredibly accomplished lawyer, 
although she doesn't claim to be an economist, an economist. Um, and as you heard, um, human being. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, John. A quick addendum to this session of Outside In with John Lukumnik. Sarah was kind enough to send us the accurate citation for the book she was reading. It's Offshore by Penelope Fitzgerald, and The Art of Losing is the Poetry Compilation by Kevin Young. Thanks again to Sarah Bloom-Raskin. Um, that was just a phenomenal podcast. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCombick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.